Those uh, songs were really expressing the desire of our heart that we would have a passion for his glory, not for our own. And uh, Christ in Luke chapter 9 is giving quite a number of lessons to help adjust the attitudes of the disciples in that way, that they would have a passion to see God's glory lifted up in the earth. And uh, it takes a great deal of work to subdue our flesh and all of the mixed motives that uh, arise. And I'm just going to read one little section, even though I'm going to be preaching all over this chapter. We're going to look at verses 51 through 56. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Father, we thank you for this, your scripture, and the other verses in this chapter, and I pray that as we look into them, that our hearts would be touched by your grace, that we would be given a deep desire to be witnesses for your, for your sake. We bless you for the opportunity that we have Sunday by Sunday of hearing your word. May not one letter of your word fall to the ground, but may it accomplish its sanctifying purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, a week from this Tuesday, Brian Fox is going to be uh, beginning some training of people in our congregation in uh, evangelism methods of Ray Comfort. And our session strongly, strongly encourages as many of you as are able to make it uh, to be a part of uh, this uh, training that he's going to be engaging in. In fact, the session asked if I would preach a series of sermons to prepare the way and uh, giving various lessons on witnessing uh, by non-experts with the emphasis on non-experts because a lot of people tend to think that, uh, you know, evangelism is what the experts do or what the pastor does or what the person with the gift of evangelism does. And it's true, it's just an amazing thing when you see a person with a gift of evangelism, it's like he's doing the same thing everybody else is doing, but God just seems to lead person after person uh, to a saving knowledge of him through that person with a gift of evangelism. But every one of us is called uh, to be witnesses. And those with the gift of evangelism, they don't need sermons like this, they don't uh, need to be encouraged, uh, they're already driven to do that, right? But I think the rest of us, uh, who don't have that gift, uh, really need to be encouraged from time to time of the benefits and, and uh, the glories that we can have as non-experts of witnessing. And I want to be up front right off the bat. I am no expert in evangelism uh, myself, uh, not at all. Now, I've been trained in several evangelism training uh, programs, and uh, I could share the gospel with any of you. I could do it in my sleep, and I've uh, done it over a thousand times. Uh, with uh, unbelievers, and uh, so I, I could share that, but I'm not an expert, and I don't, I don't even pretend to say that God has made me very successful at all. 
uh, in my evangelism outreach. I was trying to calculate, and I don't have a real good memory, but if I count the 24 people who came to Christ uh, in India uh, uh, through my personal evangelism uh, there, I think it's probably less than 50 that I have led to Christ in my entire lifetime. That's not very many at all. But let me tell you something, every one of those people was such a joy to lead to Christ. And it's my prayer that in the next five years, every family in our congregation would have the privilege and the joy of leading at least one person to Christ. Maybe we can make that our prayer. You know, every one of us would be able to to have that. Now, verse 2 of this chapter, I think, is one of the most encouraging Uh, verses here because Jesus sent these disciples out to evangelize even before they learned the lessons that you're going to be learning this morning. Uh, They fumbled their way along and the point is that even if you're not perfect in sharing, sharing imperfectly is better than not sharing uh, at all. Uh, Peter Hammond told me how his uh, oldest daughter uh, Andrea was just five years old. They were flying in the airplane to uh, Europe And just after takeoff, she yells out in a voice that the whole plane can hear, We're Christians! And he looks at her and he says, Yes, we are, Andrea, but why bring it up now? And she says, Well, the lady said that if there are any Christians, uh, they should let her know. And he's kind of puzzled and he says, Oh, I think what she said is, If there are any questions, we should let her know. (laughs) But here's a little girl, you know, who's willing to be a witness. She's not ashamed at all of Christ, and she's, uh, you know, blurting it out. And he gives other stories of how people who maybe mess up and they're not doing the best in their witness, and yet God marvelously uses their attempts to witness to advance his kingdom. And so today's sermon is primarily going to be looking at attitude adjustments that are going to make it more likely for us to recognize uh, those uh, witnessing opportunities as they, as they come along. These disciples were not there yet. Jesus is having to adjust their attitudes. In fact, he's giving them seven surefire ways to be an ineffective witness and saying, look, you've got to put these, these ideas off. And if we can at least start there, we're going to be a long ways down the road of joyful witness for our Lord and Savior. Now, the first surefire way to be an ineffective witness is to focus on convenience, on your convenience. Now, I've lost a number of witnessing opportunities over the years because I was so focused on convenience. Uh, Look at verse 12. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. Now listen to the words from Mark 6. Mark 6 adds a little bit of commentary to this. Uh, There Christ said, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. They were exhausted. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. It was supper time. They were hungry. And he had promised them a vacation. You know, they're going to go aside for a while. They're looking forward to that. And um, what he's doing here is he's helping his uh, disciples to catch a vision of availability when he says, you give them something to eat. He's saying, let's be flexible, let's be creative, let's be open to what God is doing in this situation. Well, we have our own sets of inconveniences that hinder us from uh, being witnesses. 
may be that you're just so busy or it may be you're on vacation. Hey, this is my vacation. I don't need to be doing that. Or maybe you're riding on an airplane and uh, you've brought along a book you've been wanting to read for months and you sit down. Uh, the person next door is really talkative, wanting to talk. And you're thinking, I want to read. I don't want to be talking. You can fill in the blanks and what your own inconveniences might be. Just last week, I missed an opportunity for witness because I was so focused on my task. We were packing the Suburban to go to Illinois, and there's a guy comes up, and we have this from time to time, and he's, he's asking for some money to uh, get bus to work and back. And I did what I've instructed our uh, deacons not to do, ordinarily anyway, and I was like, oh, I don't have time for that. Okay, here's, here's five bucks, so just give them off my back. And then afterwards, I was thinking, you know what? I could have shared the gospel with this guy. I mean, think about it. Here's a guy who's willing to be socially unacceptable to ask you for a handout. It's just quite fair for you to be socially unacceptable <laughs> and say to him, sure, I got five bucks I can give to you, but uh, I've got even better news. Would you, I have a few minutes for me to share uh, what I love about Jesus and what he's done about our sins. You know, he might not like it, but that's that five bucks waiting, you know, in the back. Anyway, uh, I didn't do it. I was so focused on the busyness of what I was doing that inconvenience made me blind uh, to that particular uh, opportunity. And Christ's point in asking them to invite the crowds for supper is to remind them God does not stage his witnessing opportunities around our schedule Uh, He didn't do it around our convenience. He does not wait till our house is spotless and clean before he gives the perfect opportunity to invite somebody to our house. And so we've got to uh, not focus so much on convenience as we do on, Lord, what is it you want me to do in this situation? Okay, another good way to be ineffective in witness is to have an inconsistency between your talk and your walk. In verse 1 it says, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I want you to notice it's power over all demons, but take a look down there at verse 40. Man comes along and says, So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And he proceeds to cast out the demon. Well, that phrase, but they could not, may be haunting your life right now. You know, you've been witnessing about how wonderful God's grace has been in transforming your marriage. And 20 minutes later, you know, you chew your wife out and lose it with your kids. And you're thinking, oh, what a terrible witness I was to this person. But you you feel like you can't help it. You've just not gotten the victory in that area of your life. And um, maybe there's two or three other areas that have the potential of making unbelievers think, you're just a hypocrite. You talk about God's grace in your life, and you're no different than I am. And and, and it can be an issue where your talk is more powerful than your walk. Now, here's the problem. None of us is 100% free of inconsistencies. So what do we do? You know, you can't pretend that you're better than you are. You'd be a hypocrite for sure, right? And uh, you can't try to hide what you are doing. That's what the disciples did. In fact, if you take a look at um, verses 37 through 38, it says, Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, 
Look on my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So, and that's what we read earlier, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And, and Jesus continues on. So it appears they had kind of eh, hid this fact that they weren't able to deal with this. They didn't mention it to Jesus. And here they get exposed right in the middle of the multitude. How embarrassing uh, can you get? But here is, here is the point that I want you to, to lay hold of. Our inconsistencies need not be stumbling blocks. Now, if we hide our inconsistencies... Uh, that could be a problem. If we're pretending to be better than we really are, it could be a problem. But rather than hiding our inconsistencies, what does the gospel tell us to do? It tells us to admit, yeah, we're sinners, but you know, that's why Jesus came. He died for hypocrites too. <laughs> he, he died to make me grow more and more, and I have been getting, gaining more and more victory in my life uh, over time. But if we never experience God's power, then there is a disconnect between our talk and our walk. If we never experience the reality of God's presence in our lives, which is what um, verses 27 through 36 is talking about, we've got a disconnect between our walk and our talk. So here's some questions you can, you can ask yourself. Have you ever had prayers that you have prayed and God's wonderfully answered those prayers? Have you ever had uh, a time where you've prayed for wisdom and God's come through and he's given you the wisdom that you need or you've prayed for a miracle? Uh, has God enabled you to overcome some sin that was a, a sin you just were not able to gain, gain victory over before? Is your marriage better today than it was 10 years ago? If you can answer yes to those questions, it doesn't matter how much sin you got in your life. You got a powerful testimony that's going to give hope uh, to other un unbelievers. And on the areas where you're a failure, you say, oh, yeah, that's an area I'm working on. And I keep bringing it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so it can, it can give uh, uh, real uh, hope. There was a man who was very troubled over the fact that he sometimes seemed to have the power of God in his life. And other times it just seemed like he was messing up. And he, he went to the pastor and he asked him, you know, what he could do about this. And the pastor uh, simply uh, said, John... Have you ever tried to breathe out three times while breathing in only once? Why don't you try it several times? And I said, no. And he tr tries it, and he says, well, yeah, obviously I can't do that. And he said, well, there's your answer. He says, there's my answer. And I think his point was, because he didn't go on and explain, but his point, I think, was we can only breathe out what we have breathed in. We can only breathe out the reality and the power of God's grace is if we are experiencing the reality and the power of God's grace in our lives. Uh, we can only have, you know, a credible Christian walk as we are tasting and seeing that God is good in our lives. I think that's what he was about. And every one of you has tasted and seen that God's good. You've experienced the reality of God's grace in your life. And if you have not, then you need the gospel. But if you've had the gospel in your life, you've got some things that can be a powerful testimony into the lives of other people. Maybe it's a, a struggle that you've conquered and they're going through the same struggle and you can just share with that. And say, hey, I've not overcome all my sins, but here's an area where God has helped me and it can be a witness. Third area that will turn unbelievers off quickly is when we preach the good news but we show no indication of love, mercy, or patience with the ones that we are preaching to. 
Uh, Take a look at verses uh, 51 through 56 that we uh, read at the beginning. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit uh, you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And I suspect that these disciples were a little bit puzzled by that rebuke because, hey, they're taking offense for Christ's sake. Is that not the very definition of righteous anger? In the definition of righteous anger that you're consumed with a zeal for God's glory and unrighteous anger is we're consumed with a zeal for our own glory? Is this not a God-centered anger? And Jesus says, no, it was not God-centered at all. And I think this passage stands as a warning of how confused and mixed up our motives uh, really can be, how self-serving. Jesus said, you do not know what manner of spirit you were of. Had no idea of the motives that were bubbling under uh, the service. And like those disciples, we too can have blind spots that uh, make us ineffective. Now, what was it that made these disciples hope that God would consume this village with fire? I'm sure there could be other reasons. Uh, we're not told exactly why, but uh, based on the history of the relations between the Samaritans and the and the Jews, uh, we, we can make a guess. And let me give you three, three possibilities. Uh, first, it's easier to ex- express so-called righteous anger against people we don't like. And, and it's just no surprise that Jews, generally speaking, didn't like the Samaritans and vice versa. But if your anger is flowing from the fact, you know, I don't like that person, um, It's unlikely to be a righteous anger, but secondly, they're going to realize you don't like them, and they're much less likely to receive the good news from a person who does not like them. Second, knowing the history of the time, it's very possible that these disciples had picked up at least a bit of the prevailing racism of that era. era. Most uh, commentaries say that it's just a truism, uh, you know, that most of the Jews, or many of the Jews at least, in the first century were very racist in their orientation. Now, they may not have thought of it so much as racism. It was just a truism for them that you don't hang around with the people on the other side of the railroad tracks. And let me tell you something, the people on the other side of the railroad tracks, they pick up on that. They know exactly the prejudice that's being spoken against them. They're very unlikely to receive any, uh, any good news from such people as well. A third possible reason is that these apostles maybe had at some point been personally offended or hurt by the Samaritans. Or maybe they had taken an offense of a friend or of a relative. I mean, here they're taking an offense of Jesus. Jesus is not even offended, but they're taking an offense anyway. And this is so common in the church for us to take offenses on behalf of other people. And what happens then is we begin to take on bitterness within us and negative uh, attitudes. Uh, But if our anger flows from bitterness, frustration, hatred, racial prejudice, even generalized animosity, 
it will kill our effectiveness in witness. Now, there is a balance here because uh, Scripture is not saying that we can't point out the evils and the sins in other people's lives. In fact, you've got to have the bad news, Ray Comfort points out, before you can have the good news. And uh, mercy is not mercy if you don't realize what you need mercy for. And so it's perfectly appropriate. In fact, it's absolutely essential to point out uh, sins in the lives of other people, that they're headed toward hell, that they need a Savior. That's all okay. The thing that needs to be avoided is an attitude that doesn't care that they are being judged. That's the part that needs to be uh, avoided. Think of which would be worse for you. If you were an unbeliever, Would it be worse if I'm giving you an unwanted message that you're a sinner headed toward hell? Or would it be worse that you knew that I knew you're heading toward hell and I didn't care enough to even tell you about the gospel? I think the second part would be a lot worse. They know you're headed to hell and you're not even willing to tell them? Not even a little bit of inconvenience to tell them? I think that would definitely be considered much, much worse. Now ask yourself, are there groups of people like these Samaritans that you're less likely to be patient and caring for? Are there certain regions of the city? Are there certain categories of sinner that you probably would not want to be sharing uh, the gospel with them? A holier-than-thou attitude, man, it can be smelled a mile off by unbelievers. And even the way we look at people, uh, you know, with the weird way that they dress, of course, they think we're dressed weirdly too, uh, can make a big difference. I I was thinking of that because back in 99, there was an evangelist in Colorado uh, who uh, had um, uh, heard of this politician who was... um, visiting a, what do they call these people that work for the government? Uh, It was a defense contract company or something like that. And anyway, he has this big meeting and everything, and then he's wandering through the plant, and he talks to this machinist, and uh, he says to the machinist, because he sees a a person next door with close, you know, cropped hair and baggy pants, and he says, that's the trouble with young people today. You can't tell whether it's a boy or a girl. To which the machinist answered, well, it's a girl and she's my daughter. Oh, I'm sorry, said the politician apologetically. I didn't realize you were her father. To which the worker replied, I'm not her father, I'm her mother. (laughs) 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 He couldn't win for losing, you know. So here's this huge cultural gap, which is unavoidable. I mean, there's going to be huge cultural gaps between us and some other people. But because of this gap and because of his attitudes, it came across very loud and clear. He really didn't care about the people uh, themselves. And that's not to say that we should just ignore the unisex movement. I think the unisex movement is, you know, a sign of a rebellious culture. That's That's not the point at all. What I'm saying is that we need to care about their souls enough that we can get past the tongue rings and the tattoos and the piercings and all of the weird clothing and minister to their hearts, care about their hearts. They'll know automatically there's huge differences and that we maybe even don't agree with some of those differences that they have. But uh, all of these are attitude updates that can help us to be more sensitive witnesses. Now, fourth area can be seen in that same passage where Christ says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. And then in verse 33, he said, not knowing what he said. Now, in both of those situations, they're talking without thinking. 
talking without thinking. How many unguarded words have kind of soured relationships? It's so easy to just let a word come out or a sentence come out of our lips and we think afterwards, I really shouldn't have said that. How we handle those unguarded words can make a big difference because humbling yourself, asking for forgiveness uh, can, can many times uh, 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 help. But even the illustration I gave with the politician, I mean, he was talking without thinking, wasn't he? Now, I, I, I'm not saying that Christ cannot win people to himself through our careless words. He can. He's done it many times. I tell you, some of the people who have come to Christ through terrible witness is just amazing, amazing stories that are out there. But I think unguarded, careless words that we utter without thinking have usually uh, done more harm than they have done good. So it's helpful to just think about this. When I'm talking with a person, what are some of the things that could be misinterpreted? Or when we have an unbeliever maybe at our house at lunch, you know, what kinds of subjects are going to be a huge turnoff to that person? We need to think about it. When Jesus was talking with the woman at the well, she was bringing up all kinds of controversial things that were almost like picking fights. And I suspect she was doing it because she's used to being judged by Jews. And she's maybe also trying to divert him from, from what her true self was. He definitely puts those things aside. Or in the case of the fornication, he actually uses that uh, to take her to the gospel. Her, her fornication was uh, showing her need uh, of a Savior. But what would we have done with that uh, woman at the well? Would we have gotten into an hour-long debate over politics? or over illegal aliens, or over some other things. And again, I'm not saying that those can't be good topics. God can use anything in the Scripture to drive to the gospel and to lead to Christ. But I'm just saying, you know, we need to think before we speak. That's, that's the main lesson here. Another great way of killing our witness is to speak evil of other Bible-believing denominations. Now, you all know that I've got a passion to see... Um, reformation brought to the church of Jesus Christ. So we're not saying that we can't have in-house discussions and, and speak to people about, um, uh, about the need for reformation. But <clears throat> when we despise other believers, it kills our witness. And, and so this chapter is dealing with all kinds of instruction that needs to take place before he sends them out again. Take a look at verse 49. Then John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. Now, in contrast, some people have likened modern churches to franchises uh, where, you know, we're competing with each other, treating each other as the enemy. And there's a big difference between loving other Christians enough to challenge them to reformation on the one hand and not wanting to have anything to do with denominations that maybe don't see things exactly the way we do. If judgmentalism toward the world can ruin our witness, think of the vibes they're going to pick up if we're despising even fellow believers that Christ died for. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So he's saying the greatest testimony we can have is being willing to embrace all those whom Christ embraces. Now this brings up a thorny, difficult question. How do you engage in proper ecumenism without compromise? 
And I, the only way I can think of this is avoiding two extremes. The one extreme is to say, let's have unity by ignoring the truth. Let's not talk about our differences. And that'll end you up in the kind of unity that the World Council of Churches has, uh, where eventually they end up fighting against the cause of Christ. Uh, We don't even want that kind of unity. The Bible speaks against that. But the other extreme is not wanting to have anything to do with those that might... Uh, differ with us. And I think that Priscilla and Aquila have a beautiful, beautiful balance on this. They had disagreements doctrinally with Apollos, but they did not air those before the world. They knew he loved the Lord. They knew he was a Christian. And in Acts it says, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took him aside. They didn't air their differences before the world, but neither were they satisfied with those differences. You see, if we love the other churches uh, and denominations that are out there, we should be able to lovingly, graciously, patiently challenge them to rethink their doctrines. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But if you're not friendly, they aren't the wounds of a friend, are they? And uh, so Scott says, as iron sharpens iron, uh, so... One man sharpens another. So the biblical balance, I think, is to embrace all those whom Christ has embraced, those who uh, really do believe the gospel, but love them enough to be willing to dialogue with them, not get offended when they get mad at you over those things. Uh, Just be patient, be loving, and we hopefully, as denominations, will keep growing in the Lord as we do that. Now, what difference should this make practically in our witness? Well, I've had people... tell me that they could not become Christians because of all of the hypocrites that are in the church of Jesus Christ. And it'd be very easy to, you know, just say, oh yeah, those bad hypocrites, and and, and, uh, to try to distance yourselves from them. But I've pointed out that God will will judge every sin, including hypocrisy, but that this individual is going to be standing before God. He's going to be judged for his own sins, and he's not going to get off the hook just because there's hypocrites that are out there. Uh, It would be very easy to write off the hypocrites, but what we need to do is point out hypocrisy is a sin that Jesus died for as well, and it can lead us to the gospel rather than leading us to hypocrite beating Uh, because all of us are in that uh, situation at some point or another. One man told me he couldn't be a Christian because he saw that Jimmy Swaggart had hired a prostitute, and that was it. He was done uh, with Christianity. Now, I could have waxed eloquent on, oh, yeah, he's a doofus, he's a bad guy. Look at all those doctrinal differences. I doubt he's even a Christian. Uh, And instead, I just said, you know, Swaggart and I will both have to answer to God for our sins, and God knows how to discipline his children. And he does discipline his children. But do you know that you are a child of God? Do you want to know that your sins can be dealt with? And uh, plenty of denominational issues that could just become a terrible, terrible uh, witness to unbelievers. But my point is just take people back to the gospel, take them back to Christ, take them back to God's word and admit we're messed up. And you know what? None of us could get to heaven because we're all messed up if it wasn't for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, a sixth area that is sure to make our witness ineffective is prideful arrogance. Uh, Take a look at uh, 46 through 48. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. 
And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now, we may not think of ourselves as greater than others, but our actions may indicate otherwise. But we may have doctrinal pride or pride in our social status or our economic status, or we may have pride that we don't wear such and such or we're not pierced, you know, with such and such. Uh, But uh, when pride is detected in the church, it has the ability to kill our witness. It's not just God who is offended with pride. Others are offended with pride as well. And again, these are just attitude adjustments. We need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't even know what blind spots I have. Otherwise, they wouldn't be blind spots. But please show me. I don't want anything to kill my witness. I want to be an effective witness. And he'll open your eyes little by little to the things that need to change. The last thing that Christ modeled to these new trainees before he sent them out again was that it's wrong to try to remove the offense of the cross. And you can see it all through the chapter. Let me just read you some sample verses. Uh, Verses 23 through 26. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And then take a look at uh, verses 57 through 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, why did Jesus make it look so hard to be a Christian? I mean, shouldn't he have soft-pedaled it a little bit, put a little bit of advertising uh, glitz onto it? Uh, I mean, here's some hot prospects that he's just letting slip through his fingers. Of course, we know from predestination that's not true. But what Jesus is doing is he is giving a reality check to people about what Christianity is all about to try to weed out many, probably not all, false believers. But it's not going to weed out those who are truly the elect, those who are true believers. He was not guilty of saying, try it, you'll like it. He was not guilty of false advertising. And this is what I love about Ray Comfort's uh, method uh, of evangelism. It it puts everything right up front, okay? It, It makes people count the cost of discipleship. And in our day... We've got uh, many who make the gospel as appealing as they possibly can. And they're not following Christ in doing this. In fact, I've been on evangelism teams where we're going in there and we're thinking, ah, you know, 
this person's making a profession of faith. He's being led to Christ, and he's not really being led to Christ. Even as we're doing it, I realize this guy's doing anything he can to get us out of his house. <laughs> you know, he'll make a profession, and sure enough, he doesn't call up. We don't, when we call them, they don't answer the phone. They don't come to church. And to me, this kind of high-pressure evangelism is a scandalous counterfeit to what Jesus is doing here. Now, there are other ways that we can fail to do what Christ did here. When we went to India, I was warned that uh, many of the downcountry Indians, uh, they'll make profession of faith, especially if they've seen a, you know, a healing or something like that. They'll say, wow, this God is pretty cool. He heals people. I think I'll add him to the other gods that I have in my house. You see, they're polytheists. They have no problem with adding gods. So when evangelists go there, there'll be thousands of people who make profession. And the reason they make profession, they figure, why not? It's always good to have another God on your side. And so when we went there, they said, man, you've got to really make sure that you have them count the cost of discipleship. And so when we preached, we told them that you need to repent of your trust in these idols and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that the Jehovah God is offended if there are any other gods before him. He's a jealous God, and he will not stand for that, which means you have to burn your idols. Well, we probably could have had thousands of converts too. I mean, we were going from town to town. We were preaching our hearts out. Uh, But because we were presenting the reality of what they had to go through, uh, some of the others had a handful of converts. Uh, I had uh, about 12 in one place, and uh, all the different places we went to, it was about a total of 24, and we could have had a whole lot more. But, you know, when you market the gospel and make it look like a new gospel, a better-sounding gospel, you're dishonoring God, and you're doing a disservice to the people that uh, you're preaching to as well. <clears throat> uh, when um, <coughs> Peter Hammond was here, he... He told us a story about Calvin, how Calvin had gotten into trouble at the playground. And it was at a, a school there. He said, when my youngest son Calvin was five years old, he created quite a furor at the play school by asking some of the Muslim children, why do your parents bow down to a rock in a box in Mecca? The second commandment says we shouldn't bow down to anything. That's idolatry. Some of the Muslim parents complained to the teacher, who complained to my wife, who complained to me, and I congratulated Calvin, took him out and bought him a reward. (laughs) Sounds like Peter. (laughs) But what Peter was saying is that the gospel is, in its essence, offensive. It is offensive. So while all of the other points we've looked at are saying, let's try to remove every offense that's unnecessary if we can, this point is saying, never remove the offense of God's law. Never remove the offense of the cross of Jesus Christ. We must not. So I think you can see there's, there's a lot in chapter 9 between their expeditions uh, where Jesus is teaching them about evangelism. We've just barely scraped the service. You could continue reading through this and I think uh, very productively find some other things. But I want to close by reiterating what I started with, that he sent them out in verse 2 before they had even learned any of these lessons. None of you is too immature to begin witnessing. What did Jesus do with the demoniac? He casts out the demons. He's converted. It's the first thing that they, they did. Sent him back to his family and said, preach the gospel to your relatives. He sent out as a witness. You know, in Ethiopia, every believer was expected to be a witness. 
And they witnessed all the time. There weren't any believers there that were not witnessing. And I think we can engage in witness as well. Second, Christ sends them out again in chapter 10. He sends them out again and again in subsequent chapters. And the point is, just because you've blown it, and they had, just because you've blown it in your witness in the past does not mean you say, oh, I guess I'm not going to be a witness anymore. No, if you don't make mistakes, it means you're not trying. Everybody makes mistakes, right? And so you, you keep on growing and, and going in the name of the Lord. But that's what Christ calls us to. We need to go. We need to witness. One evangelist, uh, Johnny Lavender, told about how Timothy used to be when he was uh, younger. And he said that when he was going through college, uh, he had various jobs. But one of his jobs uh, that he had was being a delivery boy for a florist. So he had a delivery that he had to make to a mortuary uh, this one day, and he uh, went to the reception desk, and he said, I've got a bouquet here and a boutonniere. Uh, where do you want me to deposit it? And the receptionist says, okay, it's the third door down the hall and to your right. Uh, just put the bouquet beside the casket and pin the boutonniere on the, on the um, what's this called? Lapel of the dead man. And he was saying, ooh, I, I've never been around dead people. He wasn't so sure about this. He was a little bit grossed out. But he, he went down, he opened the door, and sure enough, there's a body lying on top of the casket. And he says, this is gross. Uh, I didn't sign up to do this, but he didn't figure he had any way out. So he, he put down the bouquet and takes a deep breath, and he goes over top of the casket, and he's fiddling around trying to get that boutonniere into the lapel when the corpse opened its eyes and said, thanks, bud. <laughs> and he jumped back, just about had a heart attack. And uh, it was a terrible trick. Apparently, the florist had put the mortuary up to this practical joke. And I tell you, his heart was pounding. When he finally got over the shock of this, he was thinking, now, this is a silly thing. Why would I get so scared over this? And it hit him. Dead men don't talk. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. Dead men don't talk. And spiritually, dead men don't talk about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ within because they don't experience the life of God within. But here's my point I want to make. You are not dead men or women or children. You have been raised by the power of God from the dead into life, and that's all the reason you need to talk about it, to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need any other uh, wit uh, reason to be a witness. And some of you might say, but I don't know how to witness. Well, all the more reason to come to Brian Fox's training seminars a week from this Tuesday. Is that right? We're we still on for then at our house. Unless it's uh, too many people there, then we'll go to another location. But the point is, you can go out and witness even if you know nothing. You just know that you have been saved. Uh, you can distribute tracts. There's other things that you can do. But make it your goal to uh, engage in some witness even before the next lesson starts. Uh, over the next uh, few weeks, I'm going to be giving a mixture of motivation and attitude adjustments and training and encouragement. But let's start with verse 2. Verse 2 starts before you've even had training. They went out, and they were witnesses. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, that is a challenge to us, sometimes in our lethargy, sometimes in our fear, uh, sometimes in our uh, sense of inadequacy, but we know that 
uh, our, your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so I pray that we would be willing to lift up our inadequacies before you, lay them on the altar, and watch you do wondrous things through the things that we lay there. Father, help every family in this congregation to lead at least one person to Christ in the next five years. I pray that you would be glorified in the training program uh, that's coming up. We don't usually do programs, but Father, this is a, a one that we believe is a, a really needed one, and we pray that you would bless it and anoint it and uh, be with uh, Brian as he teaches it and be with each one of us that we would not just uh, be head learners, but we would immediately be putting these things into practice. And may you receive the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.